I'm going to go ahead and share with you why I am completely not qualified to teach this class. I am not qualified to teach this class because I am not a parent of teenagers. And I am not a parent of your teenager. So I need, as we go through this process, to keep that in mind, that your you know your teenager better than I ever could, no matter what you think about what I know about them, if they come to student union all the time or whatever, you know them so much better than I ever would. And so I'm not a parent of your teenager. Um, I do have a daughter of my own. She's two and a half. And as somebody recently reminded me today that the two-year-old stage is just the same as teenage stage. Um, same sort of things that you have to go through. Um, but I'm also not a therapist and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not, I'm not even trained in parenting. What I am tonight and for the next five weeks is I am one beggar trying to share where I found a little piece of bread. Okay? So I want you to really get that, that I don't have all the answers to how to figure out this world of teenagers, but I have found a couple things that have been really useful for me in working with teenagers and even in parenting my own daughter. And so, um, and I just want to pass those on. And I'm hoping that, that not just by what I have to share, but, but why, what, what we can collectively share we'll actually have something really precious and really amazing that will come out of this by the end of those five weeks. Okay, so I just wanted to throw that out there. The other things that I wanted to throw out there is I really want you to approach what we're gonna be talking about and what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks with a really open mind of trying to see how this, how this all can work together and, how, uh, and, and to see this new way of seeing things. Um, I also want you, as we're talking about these things, it's really easy to jump in your mind of how your kid does whatever it is that they do. And I want you to first apply the things we're going to talk about, especially the things tonight, to yourself. How do they apply to yourself? And then we can move to, to, to our teenagers and to how teenagers act out on those things. Um, uh, so those are some of the things that I wanted to share. Let's hear what are some of your expectations for this class. Anybody want to share theirs? Learn how to communicate with my teenager. Great, learn how to communicate. Great, we're going to be talking on that. How to set boundaries without smothering. Fantastic, good. Realizing I'm not alone. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Have a validation. Yeah. Insight into handling conflicts. Oh, good. How to adapt to their changing behaviors. Okay, great. How to keep our peace. Chaos. Fantastic. I'm being really encouraged because I'm like, yes, we are going to talk about that. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Lisa. Support and resources. Great. Discipline. Discipline. Great. Okay, cool. Good. We can, we can do that. We can do that. That's great. Um, so the other thing I want to let you know is that most of the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight is completely stolen from somebody else. So none of the stuff I'm talking about is my own material. Some of the visuals or ideas or concepts, stories, those are my own. But most of the stuff you could probably find more information about um, by reading some books or getting some videos or resources online. One of the main resources that I got this stuff from is Parenting with Love and Logic. If you have not read that book, I would strongly recommend reading Parenting with Love and Logic. Um, for me, I read Teaching with Love and Logic, and that revolutionized what I did as a parent, as a teacher, and then read Parenting with Love and Logic, and it's changed everything. They have a specific version for teenagers, 
uh, how to parent a teen with love and logic. Uh, I think that when they, in the, the prologue of that book, they talk about how they really encourage you to read the original Parenting Love and Logic first and then get the tidbits about how it changes a little bit with teens. Um, the other thing that I really got a lot of this from is the Post Institute, which is actually um, an organization that works with troubled teens that are coming from the foster care system or extreme traumatic uh, adoption processes. And so some of that came, some of this is going to come from that. We're actually going to watch a video clip of his um, as well. Uh, the reason we're not going to show the whole video that he talks about is because it's about eight hours long and it's excruciatingly boring. So I'm going to try to highlight some of those things and try to uh, really hone in on what it is that, that we really want to want to work with um, today. So uh, one of the things I heard you guys talk a lot about, you guys don't have to move, uh, is this idea of behavior, that teenage behavior is, is kind, of, kind of unpredictable and kind of crazy. Well, one of the things we're going to deal with tonight is that behavior is actually like an iceberg. In that, all we get to see of what our teenagers do is what's floating above the surface. We get to see things like them yelling, them screaming, them acting out, them sneaking behind stuff, and the good behaviors too, of them being really witty, or them being really um, impulsive in those really great ways. Imaginative play. All of those different behaviors that happen above the surface is what we get to see. But the reality is, is that there's this huge iceberg underneath the surface of why that behavior is happening the way that behavior is happening, right? There's tons of stuff going on. All we get to see is the little bit of action that happens up here. Now, we're going to be, um, let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead here. Uh, and, oh, that's right. So this behavior up here, a lot of times what we do in order to control this behavior is behavior modification stuff. We do punishments, and we do disciplines, and we take away cell phones, and we, I don't know, what are some of the other things that we do to control this behavior that are good things, necessary things? But what do we do to control this behavior? Not feed them. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, CPS? No. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, time out, grounding, in your room, all that different stuff. Any other things? Take away privilege. Take away privileges. What are privileges we take away? Video games. Computers, cell phones. What? S-Unite. S-Unite. Xbox. I thought any of those things. Okay, so we take away things, we do that. Any other things that we do to control behavior, whether it's good or bad? What do we do to encourage good behavior? Reward. reward. We praise them. We reward them. Bribe. Bribe, absolutely. <laughs> it works sometimes. Yeah. All fun of activity. The, what? A fun activity. A fun activity, sure. All of those things that we do to regulate behavior are really important and really good to do. Those are fine. As long as we're not ignoring everything that's happening under the surface, which unfortunately is a lot of times what we do. The reality is, is this behavior happens, but there's some other things that happens first. There's emotions that take place, and even deeper than that, there's thoughts that happen first. Now, this is called the psychology of regulation, right? Again, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know how all of this works. But what I do understand, which I'm confident in, because I've seen it work 
and I feel it work inside of me, is that we have thoughts that affect our emotions that then affect our behaviors. And these thoughts and these emotions are much bigger than the small little bit of behaviors that happen up here. Now the psychology of regulation says that these thoughts happen first on an unconscious level. They happen in our cells, they happen in our, uh, in our body, they happen completely unconsciously to us. And then we become aware of them and then we have the emotions and then we have the behavior. So, but on this unconscious level, there's really only two behaviors that we experience. We either experience love or we experience fear. Now let me tell you how this plays out. Uh, when I was a teacher, we celebrated teachers' birthdays after school, which was like the best thing ever. You hate your life when you're a teacher. I hated my life when I was a teacher. And the best thing about it was when there was a birthday and you got cake afterwards, right? So we finished birthdays. I went to the teacher's lounge to get some cake and there was a particular teacher there that I didn't really like very much. We didn't get along very much. And I went to grab myself a big heaping thing of cake because I deserved it. And she made a comment that said, wow, I wish I knew what you were going to look like in 20 years. Right? In that moment, I have this unconscious flip switched. Switch flipped. Where I don't love her, and anything that is outside of love is fear. I don't love her. I have this fear-based reaction. And my thing is like, I am going to claw your eyes out. I hate you right now. Like, everything else comes from that. So I have this fear, unconscious reaction. I have these thoughts. I have these emotions. And this then shows up my behavior that I don't then talk to this teacher for a really, really long time. And whenever she tries to talk to me, I make sure she knows that I don't like her. Right? That's my, that's my behavior that comes out of this unconscious thing. Now... If I had had my best friend do the exact same thing and say, wow, I wish I knew what you were going to look like in 20 years, I'm going to interpret that completely differently because on an unconscious level, I understand that, that we have love between the two of us. We love each other. We've got that. And so my thoughts about how to interpret what she's saying, my emotions based on that, she thinks that I look good and I'm always going to look good. And then my behavior about that is completely different. Does that make sense? Okay, so what I want you to do is in your table, I want you to process through that and think for yourself, what is a time in your life where you didn't experience a similar sort of thing? Where there was either a fear-based reaction or a love-based reaction. It could have gone either way, but you realized that because you did not have love between the two of you, your flip was switched your switch was flipped towards fear, and that influenced everything. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay, go ahead and talk about that in your tables real briefly. What, what, does this resonate with anybody? Okay, this resonates with us, yes. When I started thinking about this, I realized that this happens in every single relationship that I have, whether it's with a coworker, or it's with my husband, or my daughter, or my friends, or my friend's parents, and I'm like, hey, it sounds like you're operating out of fear. You know, that sort of thing. I started to see that this really does play out in a lot of different ways. Now, I want to clarify one thing, that, that although the word fear seems really weird to use, because it's like, well, am I really afraid? Here's the thing. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love 
is fear. And if there is no fear, I mean, the Bible even tells us this really clearly, and we'll look at that in a little bit, that if there is no, that, that perfect love drives out all fear. And if there is no love, then that means there's fear. And if there's no fear, that means there is love, right? So, so although it's kind of like, ah, is it really fear? I'm not really sure. They, they really are these opposite tension things. Um, and so, yes, you do have to use those kind of loosely in order to apply them to what we're talking about. But I really think that they do, they, they fit really well. What I want to do is um, I'm actually going to let you guys, have you guys watch a clip of Brian Post's thing that he does in order he's kind of going to talk again about this whole thing that we've been talking about just now. Um, but he's going to go into a little bit more detail and then expand on it. So if this works. Turn it up really loud. So they can yeah. No. That's <laughs> more. <laughs> <laughs> Those <laughs> silly kids. Is it Beth Moore? Is that right here? No. I wasn't sure. Maybe out of here. was going to be. Okay. That side of the room next time. All right. So I set this up so it would be all ready, and now I'm not so sure. I can see myself differently. I can see my struggle differently, but I can see her struggle differently too. But she doesn't always see her struggle that way. So I hope to be able to share some of these things with you. The psychology of regulation is the paradigm from which I'm going to speak. The psychology of regulation is different than the dominant paradigm, which is cognitive behavioral psychology. Cognitive behavioral psychology says thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behaviors. Meaning if you have all these terrible behaviors, then what you have to do is you have to change thoughts and you have to change feelings because then you can change behaviors. Well, that psychology, that paradigm of psychology has been with us for about the last 40 years now. But because of the neurosciences, because of the decade of the brain, because of all the findings going on with the body and what we know about DNA and cellular communication, we can look at things differently now. In fact, scientists say there's no longer a nature-nurture debate because you can't separate the two. Do you remember in Psychology 101 having to write the paper, is it nature, is it nurture? The debate doesn't exist anymore because you can't separate the two out, just like there's no separation between the brain and the body because there's nothing that doesn't take place in the brain that doesn't also take place in the body and vice versa. So the psychology of regulation actually says the same thing as cognitive behavioral psychology. It says thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behaviors. However, the psychology of regulation says thoughts occur first on the level of the body, at the unconscious level. At the unconscious level, where all we do is react. We react at the unconscious level. So those thoughts occur at the cellular level, and there's this fast-paced communication process at the cellular level that creates this information highway. Candace Pert refers to it as the psychosomatic network, the connection between the brain and the body. But it creates this information highway that forms our mind. Our mind begins unconsciously begins unconsciously. It's our stress process, our regulatory process. And then that gives way to emotion. There are only two primary emotions. Thoughts on the body level lead to emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. And this is a hard one to grasp because we've heard for so many years about all the different feelings that we have and that anger is so pervasive and shame. I think those are probably two of the, the biggest ones we consider to be primary feelings. They can be primary feelings, but they're not primary emotions. There are only two emotions, love and fear. Whatever doesn't look or feel like a loving 
feeling or emotion or behavior stems from a primary root of fear. The attachment-challenged, angry, and defiant child is a scared child. Is a scared child. I'm going to give you one other little inroad. The fear starts within us first. We become frightened too. And when we're frightened and don't see it, we can't see our children's fear. That little understanding right there in and of itself can change everything you do with children. It can change how you relate in your life. It can change how you relate to your children. If we can get it. If we can really understand it. But so, so many times we say, well, I understand it. I understand that. Oftentimes we think we understand it, but we may understand at a cognitive level, but we don't really understand it at a body level. We don't really understand it at our core. Stephen Covey says... To know but not to do is to not know. To understand but not to change your actions is to not understand. When you really understand, then a radical change occurs. Your actions change. Your actions change. And to give you a little story, the grandson of, of Mahatma Gandhi tells a story about when his when his uh, when he was younger, he had to pick up his famous grandfather from the from the airport, and he was running late. He said, I was running late to pick up my grandfather. So I got there, and he got in the car, and he asked me why I was late, and he said, I lied to him. I lied to Gandhi. And he said, but I didn't realize that my grandfather already knew why I was running late, because he had called the garage where I was at. He was just asking, you know, what, what happened? But when I told him that lie, he said he looked at me, and he said the biggest tears welled up in his eyes and started to stream down his face. And he said, I must give repentance for whatever it is that I have done to you that would cause you to be so afraid of me that you would have to lie to me. So I will walk home these 15 miles And his grandson said, I still remember following my famous grandfather five miles per hour in the dark as he walked home 15 miles to give repentance for whatever it was that he had done to me that would cause me to be so afraid of him that I would lie to him. That's a radical understanding. That's a radical understanding that transcends everything. Oh, man, I'm nowhere close to that. Nowhere close to that. But that understanding says you lied from fear because that's all that exists is love and fear. And if you were afraid in this relationship, regardless of what you've brought to the table, regardless of what your history has been, if you were afraid in this relationship, then I've done something which has not allowed you to feel safe. And I must take responsibility for that, which is saying I must take responsibility for everything. Everything. And you think his grandson would ever even entertain the thought of lying to him again after that? 
absolutely wouldn't even cross his mind to tell a lie. And so we say, well, that's creating guilt. There's a difference between being made to feel guilty and feeling guilty. Guilt is a perfectly natural, healthy thing. Perfectly natural and healthy when it comes from us, when it's about us and it's not about someone else doing it to us, shaming us but allowing us to feel that. Because if it wasn't for that guilt, instead of one bowl of ice cream, you would eat three. So guilt becomes very natural and healthy. But the significance is the willingness to take total responsibility from a deep radical understanding. A deep radical understanding that says there's only love and fear. And you can have a fear experience through any of your sensory pathways when it comes to looking at children. Okay, we're going to, you can hit the lights back on. We're going to talk more about what he talks about next in a little bit. But what I want to do is I want to pause this here and just, I heard a little, there was, there was a couple times where there was kind of like this, oh, like, what do you think? Like, what are your reactions to this? Do you see truth in this? Or are there things you're like, I'm not so sure. I want to hear about that and dialogue about that. I'm not getting all fear things. Okay. At all. Okay. That's all I have. Can you figure out where your breakdown is or not really no. even? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, anybody that I can. I don't hear what she said. I don't fear. understand the fear thing. If they're afraid, you... it's okay. I didn't, I didn't, sorry, Patty, I didn't know. Mean, is it fear? Is it an actual fear, emotional fear? Or is it a deep-rooted, psychological, go see a therapist and find out what you're afraid of type fear? Gotcha. Okay, I think that it's that it is unconscious. I don't think it necessarily means there's some sort of deep-rooted psychological thing. I think it means that this idea of when we approach relationships, when we approach interactions between people, we either approach them at an unconscious level of, I love you, so what I'm going to hear from you, what I'm going to receive from you is in love, or it's not in love. And if it's not in love, then there's some sort of fear of, uh, are you going to harm me? Um, are you going to tell me the truth, or are you going to lie to me? that there's some sort of uncertainty of I'm not completely sure what's going to happen in this interaction. Does that help at all, Patty? It, it doesn't have to. I'm still not here. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. I think maybe if you look at it more from comfortable and uncomfortable, okay. I think that makes it a little bit easier to understand. Okay. I'm going to get it from asking you why Oh, absolutely. And we're, yeah, absolutely. And we're not talking, the consequence thing 
don't let go of that. So yes, there are consequences for when you lie or when you don't do what you're supposed to do. But I think what we're trying to do is back off and see what is the under the iceberg, under the behavior sort of thing. Why Why does he even feel like it's necessary to lie? I mean, it's such a stupid lie. Why does he even, and we, we all have, I mean, I experience teenagers every week who do this sort of thing. They lie about the, stupid, the stupidest things. Why would you even lie about this? But it's coming from this place. I, I really do think that it does come from this place of, are you still going to accept me if I didn't brush my teeth? Are you going to yell at me? And it's almost trying to figure out, I mean, really, how much, where are my boundaries? How much are you going to love me? What is this really going to look like? So I think, yeah. The, one of the greatest things that I, for me, what I heard about fear, because the whole thing with fear, to me, fear was I'm scared. I'm, I'm in danger. And somebody said to me that there's two basic fears in the world. Everything comes from these two fears. A, I'm going to lose what I have. Or B, I'm not going to get what I want. And when I look at that from this perspective, it's either A, because I got the whole brushing the teeth thing, driving me bananas. It's either A, I don't understand. And it's like either A, I'm going to lose my freedom because I'm getting ready to run out the door and I don't want to go back upstairs and I'm afraid she's going to make me go back. It can be that, right? Right, That simple. Or there she goes again, I'm not enough for her. Um, You know, it, it all comes from that weird, deep, Either I'm going to lose or I'm not going to get. Absolutely. I think you've, you've hit it on the, on the head, on the nail. Yeah, on the head. Nail. It's been hit. Nail through the head. Yeah. You hit it all over the park. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you hit the nail out of the park. The little, little, little I know about cognitive behavioral therapy, I think another way that I think of this is feeling safe or unsafe. Mm-hmm. And when you feel unsafe, you know, we have thousands of years where when we felt unsafe, it was fight or flight. Right. So you have this, and so I kind of think that's the fear thing, this initial fight or flight, or you feel safe. That's kind of how I view this. Absolutely. And, and when, we, when we start to unpack this and start to look at all of those little lies, little brushing the teeth scenarios, through this lens of, what are you afraid that you're going to lose? What are you afraid you're not going to get? What's going on here? We start to see some of that stuff differently, right? But let's continue to apply this to ourselves. Think of when you were parented, all right? When you were being parented as a child and your parents were doing whatever it was that they were doing, were you parented out of, were you as a, as a, as a teenager even, um, were you parented out of, uh, or, or were, did you experience that relationship of fear or love? Was there a, I'm not going to get what I want, or I'm not going to get whatever it is, or was it one of love? What is that reflection for you? You can talk about that in your group real quick. Go ahead. Um, so, so once again, I want to bring this back to how are we afraid. So, so you talked about how were you parented out of love or feel or fear, and I hope that that was uh, kind of an enlightening conversation to have and, and sort of think through that. Um, the other thing, the next question I want to ask you actually comes along with a story. When my daughter was born, I remember we're in the hospital for that first 36 hours or whatever it is, the most terrifying time of my life. And she is, she's crying or whatever, and I remember if I kept her right here in the bed with me, she would sleep just fine. But the nurse kept coming in and saying, stupid nurses, kept coming in and saying, she really shouldn't sleep in the bed with you, you need to put her in the bassinet, like, that's really unsafe, blah, blah, blah. 
totally fine, whatever. She has a right to say that. She's supposed, that's what she's supposed to say. But I would get freaked out because every time I put my daughter in this bassinet, she would start crying. And so I would take her back and I'd hold her and then I'd try to put her in the bassinet again. And my mind jumped about 10 steps instantaneously. If she doesn't sleep in this bassinet, she's never gonna sleep through the night, which means she's never gonna be able to go to school rested and well done, which means that she's never gonna learn anything, which means she's never gonna go to college, which means that she's not gonna be a productive member of society and I have failed, right? In, in less than 10 nanoseconds, I jumped from she's not sleeping in this bassinet to she's not gonna ever be a productive member of society, right? And she's what, like a day old. And so out of that, I am freaking out. Well, I learned very quickly that children at a day old or at 16 can tell very quickly if you are freaking out. If there's any sort of fear in you, fear of something's gonna get taken away from me, what if you don't do what I say, what if I lose control, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? They feel that very quickly. So what I wanna talk about next in your groups is what are your fears with your child? When you approach your child, what are the fears that you have when you're interacting with them? Does this question make sense? What I want, um, the next question I have, we're, we're gonna do a little whole group, uh, we're gonna have you guys do it in your group and then we're gonna share some of those things out loud. So the first part in your small group is what are the parenting behaviors that you have that are done out of fear? All right, so what are the things you do out of fear, whether they're the ones you just oh, talked okay. about or, or other ones, all right? What do you do out of fear, okay? To help you get started, my thing that I do is, um, I can't think of mine. share this one out and so or I didn't plan one to share out. I know that there's tons but I'm having trouble thinking off the top of my feet or the tips of my <laughs> I have a really bad like I just meld analogies to, like metaphors they just they're never consistent um, yeah go ahead I'll, I'll come up with mine while you guys are talking so go do yours and then I'll share mine go ahead um, okay, so my thing is I am terrified that my child is going to be a bully. Uh, she, she's two and a half. <laughs> she's got those bully tricks. She was, she was on the couch out there, like, jumping on some kid with her knee in his gut. Like, I no, saw her. Right, yeah, see? <laughs> she totally, but I am. I'm, I'm worried that, you know, she's, she has definite leadership qualities. You can see that already. She's going to be a leader, but she's also real bossy. And so my fear is that I'm going to have this really, because I was really bossy when I was little, and I, like, went through this gut-wrenching period where I hated myself when I was young, like, hated myself because my whole family always told me, oh, bossy Beth, if you ever call me bossy Beth, <laughs> your neck. No, but, like, that's what they would say. And so I have this fear that there will be kind of the same sort of thing bossy, 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 you know, that will follow her. And I know that it made me sick when I was a kid that I was that way. And I don't want her to be that way. And so sometimes what happens is if she's playing with another kid, I will, she probably being pretty innocent. I mean, she's two and a half and I'm like jumping in there, like monitoring all of the interactions that she has. No, 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 we don't do that. So even if there's the slightest little inclination towards that, 
I'm like, oh, oh, stop, what are you doing? Get in your room, go to, you know, like that sort of like barking command sort of thing. Now, compare that with my child just got a big girl bed, right? Please translate this into teenage scenarios, right? <laughs> um, my, my daughter just got a big girl bed, and our new thing that we're dealing with is the getting out of the bed, and she just gets out like six times and goes back in. Now contrast that with, she did this the other night, and me and my husband are sitting on the couch, and here she comes again, and we take her back to the bed, and we sit there, and the two of us talk out and think through, this isn't working, what are we going to do? Now there are consequences that we then come up with of, you know what, she loves watching shows when she gets up in the morning, and when she gets up from nap time, and it seems like if she gets out of bed, she can't watch these shows. That, that this is this thought out consequence, we're rationally thinking through how are we going to handle that. That's very different than acting out of that gut reaction fear of, uh, would you stop, go to your room, do this, I can't believe you're doing this, you know, that sort of thing. I heard one table talk about how there's these like gut reaction of you're grounded forever. Like just, <laughs> just, you're done. You know, that sort of parenting out of that gut reaction fear versus, all right, I'm smarter than you. I am an adult. You don't tell them this, right? But, <laughs> but, I, but thinking to yourself, I'm smarter than, than a two-year-old. I'm smarter than my 12-year-old. I'm smarter than my 16-year-old. How am I going to go through this? How should I respond out of the gut reaction of fear of what am I going to lose? What are they going to become? Who are they? But, okay, really, what makes sense to do in this situation? Right? That's a totally different reaction. That's a, that's a totally different response, right? So what I want you to talk about now in your groups is what are things that you do that parent out of love? What are things that you already do where you parent out of that let's think through this, love, sort of, I love my child, and this is how this plays out. Does that make sense? Okay, go ahead and talk about that. So one of the things that we, we need to do uh, is flip this switch. We need to flip this switch from fear to love, if it does exist. Now for some parents, this isn't a problem, you're good. Uh, for some relationships between teenagers and their parents, it's already, there's lots of love, and there's very little ways that, that fear enters in, and you can flip those switches too, and, and continue to work on that, always increasing effectiveness and, and, and quality and all those sorts of things. Um, but generally, we wanna flip that switch from fear to love, right? We want all of those relationships and interactions to be totally greased with love, that they go smoothly, that from there we have the thoughts, the emotions, and the behavior, right? Now, um, the reality is, is that that switch has to be flipped inside of us, us first. If we're continuing to approach our kids with this fear-based, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, all of those things that we talked about, if we continue to approach them that way, they sense that, they know that on a cellular level, I think it's unconscious, that, that a spiritual level even, I think, I think it really is spiritual that they sense those things and they are going to approach us the same way. So we need that flip to be switched inside of us first. Now, um, I'm going to read real quickly. Um, <laughs> switch to be flipped. I'm actually, I'm actually like totally not articulate at all. Like sometimes I am. But if you listen closely, I'll drop like articles of words and stuff, and like it's bad. Yeah. But you're, you got it right. It's irritation. 
Good. I'm glad I can entertain you. All right. Uh, Bible. First John four. Oh shoot. Oh, sorry. First John four. No. Why can't I, 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 I was going to make a mark in the Bible, and then I was like, no, you don't mark in Bibles, and I totally should have made a mark in the Bible. I mark. Well, my own Bible I mark in, but not somebody else's. Um, let's just go ahead and start in 1 John, verse 11, and we'll read all the way through and, and get to cover all of it. First John chapter 4 verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we will love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and one who fears is made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If ever anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us one commandment. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now the part in there that's so precious to me is this idea that if God's love is in you, it drives out all fear. That really for us, the only one that can flip that switch <laughs> is God. Right? For us, if we have a lot of fear about this relationship, about approaching parenting, about approaching our own children, God is really the one that we have to deal with first. Or he has to deal with us. And we really need to ask God, God, I need your spirit. I need you to cast out this fear that I have. You are the only one that can deal with all of this on this unconscious level. And he's got to be the one that we go to first about this stuff. So number one challenge for this week is to deal with that stuff to God. Bring that before him. Ask him to come in you, have his spirit come in you, and cast out all of that fear so that you will be able to experience that love completely. That that switch will be flipped inside of you first. Okay? So that's the first thing. We've got to deal with ourselves before we deal with anybody else. So that's the first challenge. And don't skip that part. That's so key. The second part is this. How do we flip that switch in our, in our, in our kids, in our, in our teenagers? Um, how many of you, as we've talked about this, are like, no, I think I'm doing pretty good. We've got love almost in everything, and we're doing great. Okay, and then how many of you are like, no, I've got that fear, and we've got to figure that out. I've got to flip that switch somehow. Is that hitting home for people? Okay, good. At least some of you. That's great. Um, so here are the tools that I want to give you for what that looks like. 
So this week, your homework assignment, in addition to dealing with whatever sort of fear you have inside of you and bringing that to God, is this. One, to start to recognize that fear in your daily conversations. In your interactions with your kids, start to see that fear in them. Are they lying because they're afraid? Are they acting this way because there's some sort of fear? And why are they afraid? What could that be? How have I reacted in the past to make them act that way? Remember, um, Brian Post in the video talks about how acknowledging these sorts of things, trying to change these sorts of things, is almost taking responsibility for all of it, which seems really unfair at first, really unfair. And yet at the same time, is this not what Christ has done for us, right? This is what God did. We screwed up. We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who brought the curse on ourselves. And yet God said, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility for all of this. I'm going to be the one that mends this relationship. And this is a huge task that we're asking parents to do right, to take responsibility for all of this. And that is why it is key that you've done your business with God first, that it's his spirit and his power that is infused in you, allowing you to take responsibility for all of these things. Because this is a huge task, right? So really starting to recognize, okay, where is that happening in our relationship? What does that look like? And trying to really acknowledge and point out those things. Acknowledgement is half the battle, right? So um, that's, that's part of it. Uh, ask yourselves after the conflict, where did, I, where did I react in fear? Where did I react in love? Even at the end of the day, you can dialogue with your spouse if they're here with you or write it in your journal or whatever it is that you need to do. Go through the day. Where did I react in fear? Where did I react out of love? What does this all look like? Okay, so that's one. Yeah? I think there's um, sort of a downside to taking responsibility. I mean, we're not supposed to take responsibility. Ultimately, responsibility only for ourselves, not for our spouse, not for our children. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a good to carried away with that. If somebody's behaving badly, your child or your spouse, I mean, yeah, sure, you don't want them to be scared of us. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, that's where codependency comes from. That's where enabling comes from because, you know, the person's behaving bad, but then I start taking responsibility. Sure. I just wanted to yeah, let's, caution that a little bit. Yeah. But I think overall, that that, I think you're, you're right. we got to make sure that yeah. we're not afraid of it. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I would, I would clarify what I'm saying, and I'm really glad you brought that up, is that we can't take this part. Somebody's behavior is their own behavior. That's their own thing. And again, we're not ruling out consequences. Consequences are still important. Those are key of, of that behavior. But I think that maybe what maybe an amendment would be taking responsibility for this thing. In, in what ways have I acted that has brought them to that fear? Um, yeah. So, so thank you, Kevin, for bringing that up. And, and there, there is some codependency health issues that you don't want to take this to this crazy extreme that that ever, the whole world is your fault. Um, thank you, Kevin, for sharing that. Um, the other part of it is, um, and this is from Brian Post, he calls it the affection prescription. And I've actually had a couple parents from the church do this with their child, and, and they've had really positive results. I was going to have a parent come, and a soccer game went over, and she couldn't come um, to share about how this, how this worked with her child. But it's called the 10-20-10. And what it is, is you go in uh, to your child's room uh, 10 minutes before their alarm clock goes off. Um, and this is, this, this, is, this is a suggestion. This is not a, hey, you have to do this, right? This is an idea. This is a tool. 
You go into your room 10 minutes before their alarm clock goes up, not to wake them up early, but just merely to be by them. To say, hey, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, this particular parent that did this went in and, and her daughter loved for her to scratch her back. So she just scratched her back for about 10 minutes. It's just this way of how much of our time, thinking through the day and realizing that much of our time that we spend with our teenagers is in combat or dialoguing about the way the day is supposed to shape up. And this is kind of trying to curb that of how are we, how are we flipping that switch? We're creating a little extra space and time for love, right? So going into her room, she would scratch her back for the first 10 minutes of the day before the daughter woke up. It got to the point where the daughter would expect this and when the mom would come in, she would like nuzzle up next to her, right? So you do this 10 minutes before the day starts. I heard somebody overheard some conversation around the room that they hated starting the day with an argument. Totally get that. This is a way that maybe that could be curved, okay? After school, you take 20 minutes, and or when you get home from work, however that works, uh, take 20 minutes to sit down with that child and if you have multiple, you kind of have to figure out how to do this, right? You gotta make this work for yourself. You take 20 minutes to sit down with that child and just talk about the day. Not arguing, not going through, did you do your homework? Does Mrs. whoever gonna call me? Or did you get in trouble? None of that, let's just talk about the day. If your kids are particularly non-communicative, communicative, uh, my favorite thing to do is the question game. And this is how this game is played. You tell them, hey, I'm going to ask you a question, and you can choose to answer it or not, but at the end of whatever you want to say, you have to ask me a question. And then I get to answer or not answer. Uh, you should answer the best you can um, in order to encourage conversation. And then I get to ask you a question. And so you go back and forth with this. Now, I've had conversations with kids who were the most tight, they were not my children, but the most tight-lipped children ever. And the question kind of goes like this. I would, hey, what's your favorite color? Blue. What's your favorite color? Right? The questions start like that. The conversation starts like that. But I bet you at the end of a week of doing this consistently, the tongue starts to flow a little bit more. So that's a way to get that happening. Um, uh, for some of you, uh, my mom always did tea after school. That was the highlight of my day. We would sit down for tea. She would have a tea set. And we would come out and we'd drink tea and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you Make it whatever it is. For your guys, uh, fathers, this may not be a good tea time. That may not work so good for you, right? But what if you threw the ball around with your son in the backyard for 20 minutes and, hey, I have the ball, I get to ask you a question. You have the ball, you ask me a question. Whatever it is that that needs to be, you do that for 20 minutes of that concentrated time with your son uh, or daughter, child. Uh, the end of the day, 10 minutes. The end of the day, 10 minutes, end the same way the day began. Tuck them to bed, read them story. Right, no, you're not going to read them a story, but, but what, if, what if it's just, hey, how was your day? What if you got challenged to pray for your child during that time? Hey, you don't have to talk at all, but I want to pray over you. I want to pray blessings for you. And they may be like, this is super weird. I'm not, okay, fine. Right? That's okay. You pray for them anyways. And it doesn't have to be prayer. Uh, it can be. It can be just a touch-based conversation. Uh, what are you looking forward to tomorrow? Um, way to wrap up the day with just, even if 20 minutes before that there was a massive fight, 
find something inside of you that can end the day with 10 minutes of, and then continue that fight later. Or, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what to do with the fight, I'm just saying. End with, with 10 minutes, so the 10, 20, 10. Try that for a week, see what happens, see if there's not something that's different that starts to happen. The reason for me why this is so important is two things. One is that uh, students view, or teenagers view of their parents reflects their view of God. And so oftentimes teenagers don't like their parents. They think that they are an unfair authority figure. They think that they are mean and cruel and blah, 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 blah. A lot of which is completely untrue. But that's the same thing that the way that they reflect and see God. And so for me, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. Um, I don't want our teenagers to see you that way. Um, I want them to know that the number one person they can go to if they have a problem is you guys. Um, that's what your role is. That's your job, right? The other thing is um, our, our teenagers, especially as they get older, go through really, really hard things, um, a lot of which they don't tell their parents, and I think that that's super unfortunate because you guys have, you know them the best, and you have the most wisdom for them a lot of times um, because you know them so well, and a lot of you have been through the same things that they've come through, um, but if you don't have that love switch in place, those conversations are either never going to happen or they're going to be very hard and go the wrong direction very quickly. And so um, I have a vested interest in you because I love your kids. Um, so any last-minute comments that you guys want to, to throw out there about this whole thing? I, I'm just going to say really quick, I um, have tried this 20-minute thing, you know, like how was your day, and um, I'm a like, poster child for adult ADHD, and it's like, okay, they're not answering fast mm -hmm. enough. This is really boring. There's 10,000 things I can be doing. you got to be kidding me. Uh, <laughs> fine. Seriously, that, you know, yeah. fine, what's for dinner? Can I go to my room? You know? And so somebody just suggested to me, start telling them about your day. Yeah. And I was amazed at how all of a sudden hmm. they were like, oh, really? Well, what happened? And, okay, I want to know about that. And where'd you go? And what? You have a life. Exactly. And then all of a sudden, it, it, that helped me stay calm and in the moment and you're not going to talk you're going to be stuck listening to me and all of a sudden they realize they better talk because they don't want to listen to me hmm. <laughs> it helped me sure you know food for thought. awesome thank you caroline yeah i often want to oh i was just thinking how i often want to go well you want to know how my day was you know do you have any desire to know how my day is most of them don't, so that's a good thing. <laughs> 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 you know, so that's that's a great idea to get them to open up and talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. We do this rose and thorn thing at our dinner table. So, Good. Um, what was your rose today? And what's your thorn? And if they're in a crappy mood, I have one who's always like, "Oh, how much of oh, it's all the thorns about me?" But it's a good way to get it out. And even about problems they might have at school, it's kind of a good way to engage conversation. A similar thing is highs and lows. What are the highs and lows of the day? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of start with first period, second period. You know, we go through their class schedule. Because then that's something that they're comfortable with when they talk about their teacher or somebody else in class. But they come home and they go, okay, first period. 
and that's just kind of something that we've gotten used to, and then it kind of rolls through their day. Cool. That's really good. Um, the last thing I want you to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be telling something to you while you're doing this, but on your post-it, you'll need another one of those. On your post-it, you don't have to put your name on it or anything, but what I need from you is I need some feedback, right? I always want to improve my effectiveness of these sorts of things and doing this stuff. And so what I need from you is I need something that went really well, something that didn't go well, and then give me a rating of, of how, not me, but this class, uh, how this went, how did this work from you? Did it meet your expectations? So just a one, meaning, no, I really, I'm probably not coming back. This really wasn't what I want, which is totally fine. Or a five, which was, gosh, this exceeded my expectations. I've got a lot to think about, okay? So something that you really liked, didn't work, and then one through five sort of rating. And I'm gonna collect those so I can just know uh, where we're at with all of this. As far as next week goes, What's that? Wait, do you want the number and a comment? Yeah, I do. I want something really good, something that didn't work, and then a, and then a, a rating one through five. And I'll just have you put those at the table in the back one on your way up. Um, as far as next week, I don't know how many of you read the description of what we're going to be doing. How many of you did? Where is it? Okay, awesome. It's on the website. Um, next week, stuff's going to look a little bit different. If you guys are eating dinner with us, you'll eat dinner at 6 o'clock. And at 6.30, we're going to meet in here for about half an hour, 45 minutes. And then what is going to happen is we are actually going to learn some tools and practices and different things uh, that are kind of building on this foundation. And we are going to head into the gym where all of our teenagers are, and we're actually going to be doing something with them. So some of you have teenagers that are in there, which is is, is awesome and really great because you'll actually be working with your child. There are some students in there that won't have parents here and that's totally fine. We're gonna use the principle of adoption and we're just gonna have some of you kind of adopt a couple kids and that's totally cool. Um, others of you will not have children in there and for whatever reason they're not coming and uh, I'm not gonna shackle you or anything like that. Uh, we would invite you to participate with our students and use them as guinea pigs um, if you're comfortable with that. So that's kind of what that looks like. If you're not comfortable with that, please still come to the, to the beginning part of it. Um, we have some specific activities to really um, create a simulated situation to allow you to use the tools that we're going to be talking about next week, which is about battling over control. Okay? Um, so I hope that that's helpful. Unfortunately, all right. Let's go ahead and pray really quickly, and then we'll wrap up, and you guys can head out. All right, I'll pray and, and just close us. Um, Father God, I think it's amazing that um, you are the one that has complete control over love and fear. Uh, Father, that it is your presence that casts out fear, and you are the one who is the author, creator, and bringer of love. Father God, I ask that um, in, this, in this whole thing of parenting and this really, really difficult, hard job, the one that is a complete honor and the biggest responsibility of our lives, I ask that you would be with us, um, bring your spirit inside of us so that we may do what you have entrusted to us well. In your holy and precious name, amen.